It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I, I give thanks deeply for the partnership between Central Church and Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, and I come bearing greetings from, of course, uh, the head of our campus here, Jay Harvey, and our Chancellor Ligon Duncan, and our board. Um, my name is Scott Red. I'm down at the RTS Washington campus, and I've gotten to worship with you, uh, sometimes just with my wife and sometimes with our whole family over the last couple of years, and it's just been a joy to come up and participate in the gospel ministry in New York City. What, what, what a blessing that this is for us and for this city. And so I'm thrilled to be with you this morning and share with you out of the Psalms, uh, Psalms uh, chapter or Psalm 110, okay, Psalm 110. And you can find it there in your bulletin. The superscript tells us here, this is kind of the, the uh, stage notes for the psalm, that this is a psalm of David. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking for your illumination, for your spirit to shed light on this text that we would not only understand it, but that we would rightly hear it as the words of God. Dear Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus in this passage, that we would learn about him, that we would see him afresh and experience him through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say that no one can say that Jesus is Lord lest the Spirit says it within them, and so that's what we pray, Lord. We want to say Jesus is Lord and mean it because the Spirit of the risen Christ says it within us. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is Psalm 23. If, if Psalm 23 is the most remembered of the uh, Psalms of the Old Testament, it's the one that we still even see show up in pop culture from time to time. I think it's kind of, it's movie shorthand for you're at a funeral, is that you hear Psalm 23 being read in the background by a priest. Um, uh, you know, Psalm 23 is well known beyond just uh, Christian circles or Jewish circles. But what's interesting is that actually, if we actually look at the New Testament, we ask ourselves, what, what Psalms were Jesus most likely to cite, or the apostles, or Paul himself, it's interesting that Psalm 110 by far is the most quoted or the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. He, he actually uses it as an arguing, arguing point for his messianic identity. Uh, he focuses in on the fact that the psalmist says, the Lord said to my Lord. Peter uses it in Pentecost when he's explaining who Jesus is as, as the tongues of fire are descending upon the apostles. Peter points out that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he cites explicitly this psalm to make that point. Paul does it as well throughout his letters. The author of Hebrews, in many ways, writes a letter that is a full exposition 
of Psalm 110 and, and Genesis 14 that Psalm 110 cites, particularly focusing in on this mention of the character of Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, it seems that depending on how you judge quotes, you have about 24 or more quotes of Psalm 110 in the writings of the New Testament. So, so why is this one so cited? Why, why is this so important to the early gospel ministers proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ? And I think the reason why this is so cited is because this psalm, perhaps more than any other psalm, points to the kind of enigmatic paradox that is the Hebrew Bible, that is the Old Testament. Let me explain what I mean here. The Hebrew Bible, if you read through the whole of the Hebrew Bible text and you kind of follow the story and you listen to the prophets and you dive into the writings, the Chetavim, like the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and all those kind of miscellaneous books, if you were to work through each one of these books, you'd recognize that this grand story that's being told in the Hebrew Bible is, is laying out a world and, and, and promises for the future that the text itself can't bear up. The Hebrew Bible speaks to a divine plan for the world that the Hebrew Bible itself cannot sustain. I, I know I am saying this as a professor of Old Testament. I, I have to live in this tension over and over again that the story and the events that are described in the Hebrew Bible don't find their completion in the Hebrew Bible. Think about it. Think about Genesis 1. Right away we have God spinning out the cosmos in his word. Uh, he's, he's ruler of the whole world. Everything that is, both Israel and and the nations, everything that is, is his. Look at the promises he makes to Abraham. He promises that Abraham will have a seed and a nation. No doubt, he will have Israel. They will have the land. And yet he's not limited to that promised land. Rather, what does it say in Genesis 12? The Lord promises Abraham, you will be a blessing to who? All the families on the earth. That's a grand promise. Have you ever noticed that in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is told, now that you've been given the land, Israel is not supposed to stay there, but to expand over the face of the earth using diplomacy and proclamation of the word of God to the nations around her. You see, it was never just about Israel. We see it in the Psalms, where over and over again, we are told that all of the nations will worship the Lord. All of these passages and so many more speak to promises that are never fulfilled in the text of the Old Testament. It leaves it as an unfinished story. It leaves it, perhaps better, better said, as an unanswered question. I mean, to, to, to put a fine point on it, go to the very end of the Old Testament. No, I'm not talking about Malachi. Um, I'm talking about the last thing that's talked about in the land, the last thing that's uttered in the land of Israel following the exile, following the restoration. You have a hundred years where people are thinking maybe now we'll usher in the restoration kingdom that Isaiah and Ezekiel and the other prophets talked about. Streams flowing in the desert, a grand cosmic temple that fills the earth with fresh water. And yet sometime around 450 B.C., we find Nehemiah, after all of these attempts to restart the kingdom of God have failed on his knees, go look at the very end of the book of Nehemiah, the last words there are this whispered prayer, Lord, don't forget about us. Literally, Lord, remember me for good. 
If, if this were a play on, on a stage a couple of blocks south of here, you know, there, would be, there would be a blackened stage with maybe one spotlight coming down on this lone figure who would have his hands out and he'd say, don't forget about us. After the grand story of the Old Testament, it ends on this and then the curtain would close and intermission would come. And of course, depending on which gospel you're reading, when the curtain opens, you'd either have John the Baptist marching out to the Jordan or you'd have these shepherds on a mountainside somewhere in the Levant. But that's how the Hebrew Bible ends. Lord, remember me for good. You see, the text of the Old Testament can't bear up under the weight of its own promises. And that's why I think Psalm 110 is so important. That's why I think Psalm 110 is so crucial to the voices of the New Testament, because perhaps nowhere else are these promises of the Lord so grand, so extravagant, so future-looking than in Psalm 110. Perhaps nowhere else do we feel that kind of unfulfilled nature of God's redemptive plan than we see it here in Psalm 110. So let's look at it for a moment. I just want to see how the psalm works. Let's talk about the points that it's trying to make, and then let's come back again to how this is raising so many hopes and promises that can't possibly be fulfilled in that Hebrew Bible. Well, the psalm can be divided up into four developments. It's talking about a future king, this future individual. And it says this about this future individual, four different things. It says that he is divinely appointed this individual. He, he, is, he is heavenly born. He is mercifully present. And finally, he's globally just. Okay. He's divinely appointed. That's verses 1 and 2. He's heavenly born. That's verse 3. He's mercifully present. That's verse 4. I would actually say priestly present, but that's not a word, priestly. So I said mercifully present, uh, verse 4, or globally. He's also globally just, verses 5 So let's talk about how he's divinely appointed. Notice how the passage begins. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, and and, and in the English, uh, that's a little jumbled. I think we kind of miss the power of it because if you really were to translate this, you'd you'd recognize this this is a prophetic utterance. This is a thing that only happens a couple of times in the Psalms. It doesn't just casually say, the Lord said to my Lord. It actually says, an oracle, it announces it, an oracle of Adonai. An oracle of the divine name, yod heh vav an oracle of Adonai to my master, okay? An oracle of the Lord to my Lord. But that first Lord is the divine name. Now, the Psalms, again, in the superscript, tells us this is a Psalm of David, and I would point out that Jesus affirms this, too, in Matthew 22. He's citing Psalm 110 when he's talking to the, disciples, to the Pharisees who are questioning him, and he actually says something really interesting here. He says, if this is David, and David's talking about his messianic son king, right, the one who is to come, the one who is promised to him in 2 Samuel 7 in that covenant that you will have a son and his throne will be established forever, if this is David talking to his son or announcing about his son, this oracle, why would he call his son my Lord? Why would he use this this term of deference? No father calls his son my Lord, okay? No father would say of his son my Lord. You'd say, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my son, right, or my future king or descendant or something like that. But he doesn't, he wouldn't say the Lord says to my Lord. So, so how do we make sense of that paradox? And Jesus is very clear. 
The way we make sense of it is that we recognize that this is not merely a natural-born son. This is not merely Solomon. This is not merely Hezekiah or Josiah, those kings who are naturally born out of David, but this is some other kind of king. That's Jesus' argument. Don't you see David is anticipating another kind of king, one who's not merely natural-born, though he is that, but that he is something more. Look how he's described. He is divinely appointed by God for this role, and he is placed at the locus, at the center of divine power, the right hand of God, the most honored place, the peak of authority. In the psalm, it's interesting that the Lord is the active agent. Notice what it says, I have placed you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is doing it? The Lord is actively going out, moving, expanding, and pushing the kingdom of this Lord, this king who sits at his right hand, he's pushing it out over the face of the earth out of Zion. You see, the project can't fail because the creator God himself is bringing it to bear. The scepter comes out of Zion. Zion, of course, historically is that temple mount that Jerusalem is kind of built around. And yet as we're reading the Psalms and as we're reading Isaiah and we're reading the prophets, we start to notice that that term Zion isn't just used anymore for this kind of like geographical location, but the poets and the prophets start to use it as kind of emblematic of the place from which God's deliverance comes. Zion will be lifted up. Zion will be put forward, and out of it will come God's deliverance for his people. Here, the scepter of this king extends out of Zion, but where does it go? It goes over the face of the whole earth, establishing his authority despite his enemies, despite those who would oppose him. Psalm 2 says that the nations rage, but here in Psalm 110, we see it doesn't matter. They may rage, but his throne will be established over the earth, and it cannot fail because it is divinely appointed. So this king is divinely appointed, but he's not only that, he's also heavenly born, and that brings us to verse 3. Now, I do have to say, verse 3 is an interesting verse. This is one of those passages in the Bible that reminds us that this is indeed an ancient text, that we're sitting down with people who are writing in a different language, with different cultural understanding than us, with all kinds of their own, they have their own memes that we don't have reference to, and they'll cite these things sometimes in their poems, and you'll have to say, I kind of think I know what they're talking about, but it's, it's not exactly clear what's being said. If you even look at your ESV translation in your Bible, or if you compare different translations like the NIV to the King James to the ESV, you'll see the diversity of interpretations of this passage. So I don't want to nail down what it precisely says because that's, that's debatable, but we can draw out what we do see to be clear here in this passage. First of all, note this. There will be a group of people who will rise up. They're called his people, all right? the king's people, they will rise up and they will rally to his cause upon hearing his voice, upon seeing him emerge, this divinely appointed king, they will rise up and respond to him. This is illustrated by the fact that he has been sanctified for this work from his childhood. The reference to the day of power seems to be referencing this whole big, you know, broader idea and image in the Hebrew Bible of this day, the the day of the Lord, the Yom Adonai, where the Lord will come and he will establish justice and he will establish flourishing. 
and he will establish peace. And sometimes it's called the day, sometimes it's called that day, sometimes it's called the last day, sometimes it's the latter day, sometimes it's the Yom Adonai, or in this case, it's the day of power. But notice how the psalmist describes it. He says, this day of power is coming. No matter who might oppose it, the day of power is coming, and that's something that his people can take comfort in. It establishes the sovereignty, the power of God. No matter what you see happening around you, Israel, to the, from the Babylonians or the Philistines or the, the Assyrians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, no matter what you see happening, know that God has his day. So I was thinking about this. I, I was reminded of Muhammad Ali, the, the great boxer and, 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 a, and a, a person who just dominated his sport for years. He was so dominant, he was so unbelievable in the work that he did that as he would go out to fight, he would taunt his opponents and he would tell them the time and the round when he was going to knock them out, okay? He's a great, he's a, he's a world-class trash talker as he was a world-class boxer. I remember when he's going up against Sonny Liston to fight him, he says this, he goes, I predict that he will go down in eight to prove that I am great. Then he says, but if he wants to go to heaven, I'll get him in seven. You see, Muhammad Ali was, was so dominant at boxing that as he walked out, he would declare to you when he was going to have his victory. Okay. I mean, there are times where as he's about to knock his opponent out, he would go over to the side of the ring next to the press pit and he'd tell everybody to get their cameras ready so that they could catch it on film when he knocked out his opponents. That's why we have good shots of some of his knockouts, is because he had warned them ahead of time, here it comes. You see, that kind of dominance, that kind of unbelievable sovereignty of the field is what we see in those day of the Lord promises. He's saying, Israel, I know that you feel like you've been knocked down. I know that you've seen your children kidnapped. I know that you've seen your nation raised to the ground, but the Lord has a day for the sojourner and the widow, for the orphan, those who are disenfranchised from society, who have nothing to offer the world. The Lord has a day, and you can bet on it. You can count on it. He will come, and he will set all things to right. Here in Psalm 110, the, day, the king's day of power will come, and his people will see him, and they will recognize him, and they will follow him. As Jesus says, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they follow him. Now notice the day is depicted as the break of dawn. You know, look at what it says here. There's this darkness of night, but then the darkness of night gives way to the womb of the morning. I love that. This is beautiful poetry. And it's, it's, it's the dawning of the day. The day of power will be dawned out of this rosy morning, the womb of the morning. And then the next passage is somewhat difficult, but what happens? We see that there's dew now. There's dew on the ground like there would be in the morning, like there is on Central Park on a crisp early morning as the light comes in and chases away the darkness and what, where the ground was once dry and barren, now it is covered with the dew of God's kingdom. Where there was once darkness, there's now light. Where there's once dry ground, now his people, his kingdom cover the earth like dew. The language of youth here is specifically 
talking about early youth, by the way, when it says the, the, the dew of your youth will be yours. That youth is not talking about like an adolescent or like an elementary school age child. This is talking about an infant. As a matter of fact, another way to translate this is, is this whole line of poetry is, is to say it this way. From the womb of the morning, from the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you like dew. Okay? From the womb of the morning, I have begotten you like dew. Notice he's talking about the day of the Lord coming, and as it dawns, the Lord begets out of the womb of the morning the kingdom of this king like dew over the face of the earth. No matter how you interpret this, it's clear that the king's birth or his early infancy is ordained by God and given to him by God. From birth, he sanctified for this work. So the king is divinely appointed. He's heavenly born. Now we get to verse 4. He's mercifully present. The king is divinely appointed and heavenly born, but he's also mercifully present as a priest. Now to understand this, we do have to understand how the offices of priest and king work in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have all different kinds of jobs and offices that are out there. You have, you have sages who are speaking Proverbs. You have prophets who are declaring uh, oracles of the Lord. You, you, you have priests who are interceding for the people. See, the priests are probably the most democratic of all of the offices. They're the ones who've been to your house. They, they, they've gone from village to village. They've, they've received the tithe. They've offered sacrifices on your behalf. They've prayed to the Lord, interceding for you, that the Lord would forgive you and have mercy upon you. The king's quite different. He's on his throne. He's, he's in charge of building projects. He's, he's leading people out in battle. He judges cases, like, like David judging the case about the man who loses his ewe lamb, right? And then the prophet says, you're the man. You're the one who did it. Um, you know, the, the, the king is judging cases, but he's not down in your town. He's not, he's not, a, you know, he's not on a whistle-stop tour through Israel or something meeting with the people. That's what the priests do. See, the priests are the ones who are caring for the people and watching over them and interceding for them. And the king is not the priest. So how do we bring these two offices together? The psalmist here uh, resorts back to this kind of mysterious character from Genesis 14, a character named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is as interesting and mysterious to the ancient audience uh, of the Bible as he is to us today. But he's this character who emerges out of the story in Genesis 14. And what's interesting about him is that he comes out of the city of Salem, which is quite possibly Jerusalem or some early version of Jerusalem. He comes out of the city of Salem, but he's called a priest king. And Abram, later Abraham, comes to him and he gives tithes and offerings to Melchizedek and then he receives a blessing from Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek kind of backs away, you know, back into the, the shade of time and history and we don't hear about him again until passages like this one in Psalms 110. The author of Hebrews makes a lot about the character of Melchizedek. He says this, Melchizedek is the priest king who predates and super, surpasses and goes above and beyond and against the Aaronic priesthood. For the author of Hebrews, he says, do you want to know how Jesus can be a priest 
and yet not be born of Levi. He's born of David because that's what we would have expected. As a matter of fact, the psalmist here would expect that. This king priest is born of David, so he's in the line of Judah. He's not in the line of Levi. How can he be an Aaronic priest? And the author of Hebrews says, how can he do that? Because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a part of that priesthood that comes long before Aaron ever said the Aaronic benediction, long before the promises of the sacrifices and the temples of the Old Testament existed. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews makes this kind of interesting argument. He says, when Abram bows down and submits to Melchizedek, giving him tithes and receiving his blessings, Levi and the whole priesthood bow down with their father Abraham to do this. He says, this is how we can see that the Old Testament priesthood of Levi and Aaron are actually submitting to the greater priesthood of Melchizedek. And this priest king that is being described in Psalm 110 is a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. But how can this be? How can a priest be a king? How can a king who leads us in battle be the one who knows us and intercedes for us and sympathizes with us in all of our shame and our trials and our temptations. You see, Psalm 110 is making promises that the Hebrew Bible itself can't hold up. It doesn't have an answer for how this priest can be in the order of Melchizedek. And then the author of Hebrews comes to us and says, have you considered Jesus? (laughs) Have you considered Jesus of Nazareth? So this king who's coming is divinely appointed, he's heavenly born, he's mercifully present like a priest, and then lastly, verses 5 through 7, he's globally just. His kingdom is one of justice. Now the description here evokes a kind of picture of the nations raging and rising up against God. There's there's wickedness and oppression and chaos and death and destruction, and the forces of these powers are are pushing against God's kingdom, and yet this king comes, and because he's divinely appointed, his kingdom expands over the face of the earth, bringing down the exploiters and the oppressors, the wicked, the abuser. It's amazing. It's actually total and grand. Even the nations are described in this terrible picture of corpses filling them up, And this image, this terrible image, is one that's drawn clearly from the ancient Near Eastern battlefield. The psalmist is saying, I know you've seen what the Canaanites do to you. I know that you've seen what the Philistines can do to you. I know that you've seen the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians. But one day our king will come, and in the day of his power, he will put down those abusers. He will put down the oppressors. He will put down those who propagate injustice around the world. Like the God who appointed him, this king is merciful, but he is also just. He is identified with the God of life. He gives life. He's the author and sustainer of life. God made these nations. He's the one who cared for them and gave them everything that they needed to succeed, but they rejected him. They wanted his blessing, but they hated him because it reminded them of their reliance on him. This is the logic of judgment in the Bible. God is a God of life and mercy. So if you reject him, what are you rejecting? You're rejecting life and you're rejecting mercy. When you go from being a worshiper of the Lord to being a worshiper of the idols, according to the prophets, 
Injustice is quick to follow. It's a part of the spectrum. It's a range. Idolatry always leads to oppression. But this, of course, raises the greatest paradox of all in the Old Testament. The Lord presents himself as being a God of justice, but then he also presents himself as being a God of mercy. When he introduces himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, the kind of second introduction where he declares his divine name, he says, the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but also just, who will not acquit the guilty. It's interesting, actually, the logic is kind of flipped, right? Because how can you be merciful if you don't have justice? But notice God doesn't lead with his justice. He leads with his mercy. Kind of illogically, he begins with the fact, I love to show mercy. I love to show compassion. And yet these two attributes, God's perfect justice and God's perfect mercy, are always seemingly at odds or in tension throughout the Old Testament. And they never find resolution there. The question of the Old Testament could be phrased in this way. Where is God's mercy? Where is God's mercy? Israel has struggled. She's suffered for her sin. She's been oppressed throughout the years. When will the Lord, the God of mercy, bring mercy to Israel? The story ends with Nehemiah on his knees saying, Lord, don't forget about us. Where's the mercy? But we could also ask it another way. Where's the justice? Lord, look at, all, look at what these people are doing. Look at the sins that they've committed. They turn away from you, even your own people, as, you're being, as you've led them out of Egypt and you're giving them the law. They're at the foot of the mountain worshiping another God. Lord, where is the justice? And how can both of these things be true, that God is a God of mercy and justice? It doesn't find relief. It doesn't find resolution in the Old Testament. It does not find resolution until we arrive at the cross of Christ. That's where the question, the tension, finds its relief, its answer, its resolution. On the cross, we find out that the conquering king who was to come and bring global justice is also a self-giving priest. His justice is global, and that's good. It's good for justice to reign on earth. But his first great act of justice is to open the door to the path of mercy. Because when he ascends to the cross, he takes the judgment of his people into himself and onto himself. And in the most lopsided exchange in the history of human contracts, he takes our justice, he takes our judgment, and he bestows on us his inheritance. You see, Jesus, through being just on the cross, provides the way for us to receive mercy and compassion. The late Anglican theologian J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, in Psalm 110, God sets the Messiah at his right hand as a king and a priest, as a king to see all of his enemies under his feet and as priest to serve God and to channel God's grace forever. Though personally the Messiah may be out fighting, positionally, He is always sitting at the Lord's right hand. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, and this connection, by the way, between Psalm 110 and this kind of slight echo or illusion that we find in Ephesians 1, I actually first noticed this uh, through Tim Keller who pointed it out to me, and he had learned it from Ed Clowney, his teacher. 
But listen to what Paul says here. He's writing in Ephesians 1 about the hope that God has worked out for us. And he says this, the hope that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we see Psalm 110 being introduced here. What does that mean? He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, right? His footstool. We see the king's uh, reign being being, um, impacted and affected by God. And then what happens? And he gave him over all, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, this conquering king is a self-giving priest. He fills the earth not with corpses, but with his resurrected body. That is, he fills the earth with the congregation of his people who are joined with him in his death and by faith are resurrected with him so that they are now new creation. They are dead. The old is gone. The new has come. They are alive in Christ. You see, Jesus Christ surpasses the already grand anticipation of David in Psalm 110. And that's how the New Testament always relates to the Old Testament. The promises of the Old Testament are always fulfilled in a more extravagant, more thoroughgoing, more eternal, more global way. In the Old Testament, Israel is promised against all odds to attain this land on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And yet in the New Testament, God's people are given the whole earth. In the Old Testament, they're promised a king who will establish uh, their own kind of uh, national security uh, in Israel. But in the New Testament, they're given a king who expands his kingdom over the face of the earth. In the Old Testament, they're promised victory against the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. In the New Testament, they're given victory over the spiritual forces of evil. They're given victory over death. They're given victory over sin. In the Old Testament, they are promised a kingly priest in the order of Melchizedek, and in the New, we find Christ himself bearing the judgment that his people deserve so that he might provide them with an outpouring of mercy and peace. You see, this is what he is offering you, and this is what he is offering me. Do you want to be a proponent of justice? You have to consider what that means for you. Do you really believe, as we just prayed in the confession of faith earlier this morning, do you really believe that you are complicit in injustice? Do you recognize that you have harbored thoughts of injustice, that you've kept your mouth shut when you should have spoken up, that you have seen people who are made in the image of God and who are in need, if you have seen them as just means to your own self-interested ends? Do you really believe that? If you do, then there's only a couple of options ahead of you. First of all, you can ignore justice because, of course, you're implicated by it, so you ignore it. You can ignore your own complicity, and so you can become a hypocrite who calls out for justice and ignores the fact that you're complicit in it. Or you can throw yourself on the mercy of the just judge 
the priest king. You can confess the truth about yourself and your complicity, and you can acknowledge your injustices before God, and you can acknowledge that they must be answered. They need to be dealt with, but the priest king, Jesus Christ, who gives of himself says, I will take them for you so that you can receive the mercy that he is offering you. You see, in the gospel, we can truly and consistently and genuinely be for justice because we recognize that even our sins need to be judged. When we offer someone the gospel, we offer them that their sins will be judged in Christ Jesus, that they will be put on his head and not on your own because that is what Christ is offering us, and it is a sweet thing. It is indeed good news. That's the promise that Christ makes to us, and he can make good on his offer. Because as Psalm 10 reminds us, he's divinely appointed, he's heavenly born, he's mercifully present as a priest, and he's globally just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this meditation. Lord, I pray that as we see Jesus we'd be drawn to him, Lord. I pray that we'd see ourselves transformed by his mercies, that we would respond not merely with gratitude, but with that, but also with a realization of our union with him in his death and therefore a union with him in his resurrection, Lord. I pray that we'd receive that new life and that we'd see it at work in our lives, drawing us to you through the spirit of Christ. You say, through the Apostle Paul, that no one can say Jesus is Lord and mean it unless the Holy Spirit says it within him. And so now as we come to this table, Lord, to receive the spiritual nourishment of this table, Lord, I pray that your spirit would testify to our spirits of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we would say and mean it that Jesus is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.